abuelita. Mija, are you hungry? Yes, I'm hungry, but I want to ask you a question. Are we conservative? I am. How do you know? Mija, siéntate. Your abuelo and I came to this country because we had nothing. Everything that you see is because of hard work. You've got goals, dreams, and if you try your hardest, you will succeed. That's a promise. Yeah, I'm a conservative too, abuelita. <laughs> And there, folks, is the cameo appearance of our newest congressional elect candidate from the state of Texas, born in Tamaulipas, Mexico. She was elected last night as she faced two Democrats and another Republican in a special election called by the governor to fill a vacancy in the United States Congress in the 34th congressional district of what's called the RGV, the Rio Grande Valley of Texas which is about an 82% Latino district and has historically elected pretty much nothing but Democrats. And let me just say, when we started this organization, Texas Latino Conservatives, as you all know, we're two organizations. We're a Texas general purpose PAC, political action committee. And while we cannot get involved and directly make expenditures on behalf of federal candidates, Mayra Flores was one of our early students in our nonprofit organization of the same name called Texas Latino Conservatives, we are 501c4, where we train young Hispanics across the state of Texas on how to get involved in the political process. One of the things we've noticed here in Texas is the dearth of Hispanics that participate in politics, either in elections uh, as voters or as candidates or as grassroots members of the conservative party. Uh, here in Texas, the Republican Party. And so our efforts have been to educate the community. And so through Leadership Latino in December of 2019, we went down to the Rio Grande Valley and I had the honor and the privilege of training Mayra Flores, who was a very shy young lady. And thereafter, she started posting on Facebook and in short order had more than 40,000 followers as she talked about her values as an immigrant and the child of immigrant migrant workers here in Texas. And so over many, many months, we encouraged her to follow her dreams and her dream was to share her conservative values with her friends down in South Texas. Eventually, she made the decision to run for office. And the lesson here is, if that's your dream, and if you're young and in Texas, pursue it. Uh, she took a leap of faith. Uh, she took the skills that she learned over many, many, many months as a novice candidate and has just won a congressional seat in a special election. Now, she'll have to stand for re-election in November uh, because this was to fill a vacancy. But it was history last night, and we're proud that TLC could play a small role in ensuring her victory and promoting her as a candidate. We want to thank our supporters over the last couple of years that have made this possible. And as Andrea and I say on this program all the time, everything you see here, all of this production, 
our training courses across the state of Texas. We've trained more than 230 young Latinos across the state of Texas. Uh, we get involved in Texas races. Uh, and we were involved in 25 Texas House races in 2022. I'm sorry, in 2020. And we will be involved in a multiplicity of races again here in the state of Texas. None of this is cheap. And it's made possible by our contributors. So if you like what we're doing, if you like the results, please go to our website, TexasLatinoConservatives.com, and make a donation, make a contribution, become a member, follow us, at least give us your email so that you can get our newsletter to see the great works we're doing across the state of Texas. So I personally, as an immigrant to this country who was elected as a naturalized citizen, to the City Council of Houston as a Harris County Treasurer. I had the pleasure of running twice for Mayor of Houston. It's a real honor to see immigrants running for office and winning elections. Oftentimes in the media, they portray the Republican Party as racist, as anti-immigrant. But we have proven time and time again that conservatives will even give law-abiding, naturalized citizens born in a foreign country an opportunity to hold public office. And let me repeat what I say. This is what makes America the greatest country in the world. Imagine, if you will, if you went to Moscow and tried to run for mayor or city council there or even run for the uh, federal government. It wouldn't happen. Imagine moving to Tokyo, Japan, and trying to run for public office. It wouldn't happen. You'd never get elected in Caracas, Venezuela, in Managua, Nicaragua, and you certainly wouldn't get elected in Mexico City. But in the United States, even immigrants have an opportunity to help lead this great republic that is covered by one piece of parchment only, and that is the Constitution of the United States that covers everyone, whether you're foreign-born or natural-born, you are a citizen of the United States, and that's why the entire world wants to come here. So that's my editorial comment. Felicidades para Mayra Flores, que ha ganado la carrera para el Congreso de los Estados Unidos anoche con más de 51% del voto y estamos sumamente orgullosos de ella. Andrea. Wow. Buenos días. <laughs> buenos días y bienvenidos a todos a TLC Live. And uh, recently the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, brought up, uh, made a poll talking about exactly what is going on and exactly what happened last night with Mayra Flores, how Latinos are flipping to the conservative party, to the conservative values. And this is something historical. And that's why we want to invite, uh, we invite uh, Professor Mark Jones from Rice University to talk about, not only about this poll, but what is going on in Texas and uh, along the country. I think it's in many places are, the Latinos are seeing and are going back to the roots, to the values. Well, and, and you know, Andrea, ever since we started this organization, uh, and, and just for a little bit of history for those watching, uh, when we began this organization, we called it Texas Latino GOP PAC. Uh, I was still in public office as county treasurer of Harris County, and one of the first places I was invited to speak was to the Manchester Civic Club in Houston underneath the Ship Channel 610 Bridge, for those of you that live in Houston. And I was told by that mostly Mexican-American community that they'd never seen a Republican there. I said, I hope it's not the last time. And after I spoke, the vice president came up, a veteran of the United States Air Force, and said to me, you know, Orlando, I'm a conservative, but I'm not a Republican. 
And as I continued to travel around Harris County, I kept hearing that from Latinos. We're conservative, but we're not Republicans. And we quickly learned that the brand was damaged among Latinos. So we changed our name with the Secretary of State and with the Texas Ethics Commission, and we rebranded as TLC, Texas Latino Conservatives. Notice that we never say vote Republican. It's very rare. I mean, we'll promote Republican candidates. But we always tell Hispanics to vote their values. My vision has always been that if we remind Hispanics of why they're here, especially immigrants, and we talk about our values, which are the values of pretty much everyone in America, we come to realize that there's a disparity, there's a disconnect between the political parties and what they articulate and what their values are and where the Latino community is voting. So Professor Mark Jones, um, I don't know if you agree with any of that or if you want to make comment, but you know we've got to admit that what's happening in Texas is nothing short of like a major tectonic plate movement in the political process. Some of my friends that have been polling for years in politics call it the great realignment. And to me, it's a phenomenal political event. Um, can, can you comment on what's going on in Texas? Oh, sure. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I mean, I think when we're thinking about, uh, you know, Latino voting in Texas, one factor, at least in the over the past, I'd say, 10 to 12 years, is that the Republican Party historically has won between 35 and 45 percent of the Hispanic vote. Uh, really bad years with bad candidates, uh, more closer to 35 uh, percent. Good years with good candidates, closer to 45 percent. So. Uh, and that makes Texas stand out from many states, such as California and New York, where the Republican share of the Latino vote generally is more in the 20s or low 30s. Now, what we've seen most recently, sort of with past 2020, is more of a shift in South Texas than in the rest of the state. The rest of the state stayed at pretty much its constant in the 40, 45, 35 range. Uh, South Texas, though, has made some trends in, in part because of the growing disjuncture between where uh, Hispanics, who are the overwhelming majority of the South Texas population, places like Cameron, Hidalgo, but also uh, Webb County, Laredo, and going all the way up to Nueces County, Corpus Christi, uh, the growing disjuncture between the positions of the Hispanics who reside in those areas and those of the National Democratic Party. So, I mean, a good, a good example of that would be Henry Cuellar, the congressman from Laredo, uh, District 28, who narrowly defeated Jessica Cisneros, a more AOC-aligned Democrat, in, the, in the, uh, primary, the primary runoff in that district. That district runs from Laredo and Star County all the way up to San Antonio, Bear County. Uh, there you saw Cuellar really was in the election of his life, uh, in real fight for his life. He had to work very hard. Uh, and he almost lost. Cuellar, though, really represents the sort of where the average Latino voter in District 28 is, and, and it's close to where the average uh, Latino voter in the Valley is, in that they tend to be more centrist, more towards the middle of the spectrum than national Democrats. And so one of the trouble that, uh, troubles that are problems that uh, Democrats in the Valley have increasingly had is that they are weighted down by a national party whose positions are often at odds with those of the average voters in the area, even though those voters have been voting historically Democratic for a century. 
Yeah, and 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 you know, I still think the hits, as I like to say, are still going to be coming because there's another interesting race brewing down in the RGV, and that's the congressional race with Monica de la Cruz. Um, how do you how do you see that shaping up in November? Well, yeah, well, that's District 15, and so that runs uh, from Mission on the border there in Hidalgo County all the way up to Seguin. So it's a district that sort of runs uh, straight up, and it's. It's a place where when Republicans and the Republican legislature redrew uh, the maps, uh, that was the one sort of reach. Uh, so, you know, the, the, when the Republicans went into the legislative process and redrew the congressional maps, the primordial goal was to retain the 23 seats that the party had, so protect the incumbents, and they did that very effectively to split one of the new seats with Democrats, which they did. They created a new district for uh, Wesley Hunt here in Harris County that's reliably Republican. And then the one place where they really went on the offensive was District 15. That was a district that was drawn to make it very competitive. And given the problems that the Biden administration has right now, it's going to be a bad year for Democrats. And as a result, uh, Monica de la Cruz Hernandez has a very good probability of winning that race, especially since uh, Democrats in their primary had a choice between a more moderate candidate, uh, Ruben Ramirez, uh, and a more sort of AOC progressive candidate, Michelle Vallejo. And Vallejo, at least by all appearances, narrowly won that primary. And as a result, Democrats will be putting up a candidate who's probably less electable than, say, Ramirez. Although it's important to keep in mind that that's a district that the current incumbent in that district, Vicente Gonzalez, believed was uh, sufficiently unwinnable that he opted to decamp for District 34 immediately to his east. And so he'll be going up against Myra Flores in the new with the new boundaries of that district rather than trying to retain his old district of 15. So I think that's a district where Republicans have a very good probability of flipping it with Monica uh, de la Cruz being able to take uh, uh, Monica, la Cruz, Monica Cruz, de la Cruz, de la Cruz, uh, being able to take that seat. The other place where Republicans have a reasonable problem, or at least a decent chance or fighting chance would be one in 34, where Meyer Flores will face an uphill battle against Vicente Gonzalez. And over in 28, where Cassie Garcia, uh, that's District 28, that runs from, that's the Cuellar District from Laredo up to San Antonio, has the prospects of potentially defeating Cuellar, though once again, it's going to be uphill for her. I think both Garcia and uh, uh, Maya Flores are going to need some national, uh, sort of a national win in their back to defeat Cuellar and Gonzalez. Although, given the troubles that the Biden administration has, that's not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, that's a pretty good, strong, steady win. You know, I like to look at trends and sort of uh, uh, look down the road. You know, one of the things that I've always been critical about conservatives in the Republican Party is they're always looking at the next election. I think Democrats are always looking 10 years down the road. And so I'm trying to do that. And one of the things is, uh, you know, uh, I've spent a lot of time in Valverde County and Maverick County. And what people don't realize, for example, I got a call from the former mayor of Del Rio, Texas, a, an attorney by the name of Robert Garza. And as you know, he ran for state representative. He's on uh, he, he's seeking uh, uh, to, to, to be a senator from out there. But the, these are uh, these are interesting trends. Uh, I'm a property taxpayer in Kinney County, Texas. I've always been amazed 
how heavily Latino, Hispanic, Mexican-American that community is. But when the national elections in 2020 were held, it was amazing to me to see the number of Trump signs. And then, of course, we all saw what was happening in Maverick County. Maverick County, for the first time, has a substantial number of Mexican-Americans, Latinos, Hispanics, uh, that have sought the Republican nomination. So now where you saw, you know, essentially, Professor, and you know this, uh, elections down in South Texas were pretty much uh, decided in March in the primaries, you know, because it was by default the Democrat won. But now in many counties, as you mentioned, Star, Webb, Maverick, even Valverde, we have competitive races. Is that a trend that's positive for uh, for conservatives, for Republicans in Texas? Well, it's, I mean, especially for Republicans, it's positive in the sense that before Republicans effectively gave up those seats, they didn't. There were you, in in the Repu- in the Republican primary in the spring. There often were no local races, not neither at the county level nor even for state rep, state senate, and so as a result, it was effectively a default. And you know, just as Democrats are trying to start up grassroots organizations and build in rural West Texas and East Texas, where they consistently do poorly, uh, you have to start someplace. And so the first step is by fielding candidates for local offices and developing a bench and developing people who uh, begin competing and are out there with the message. Uh, Whether that message resonates or not is up to the voters. But if you aren't giving them, if you aren't pitching a message to them at all, and you're effectively giving the uh, race to the other party, you obviously aren't going to be very competitive. So what I mean, so one way to think about, I think, South Texas for Republicans is that and this is, I think, the same way that many Democrats think about sort of West Texas and East Texas, and that even if they aren't, if you don't win those races, if you you're by fielding candidates and by having a presence, you're going to boost turnout for statewide races or higher level races and thereby aid the competitiveness of the party. So for instance, for Republicans, Republicans don't need to win South Texas uh, for it to be positive for them. What they do need, if they can just simply get a higher share of the vote there, those are votes that Democrats historically have counted on to counterbalance problems elsewhere in the state. And so for, for for, for instance, for Greg Abbott, if Greg Abbott doesn't need to win Hidalgo County or Cameron County, uh, he just if he does better than average in those counties, that means De- Beto is going to have to try to outperform him in the suburbs. And that could provide a cushion because one place where we do see Republicans having increased in trouble are in some of the inner suburbs uh, throughout uh, both in the Metroplex, uh, places like Collin and Denton County that used to be more reliably red, now are pinker. And increasingly here in, uh, in the Houston metro region, Fort Bend is now sw- switched slightly blue. Uh, Montgomery is still pretty red, but uh, Brazoria is getting a little pinker as well. Yeah. Uh, Professor Jones, uh, what do you think have been the issues that is making the Latinos to flip and to, um, you know, to, to flip from the, the Democratic Party to the Republican Party or to become conservatives or to realize that they are conservative? I think part of it, I mean, that's, I like to focus on South Texas because you know, we've seen more of the shift there. Uh, I think in places like Houston and the Metroplex, there's a little more constant. Uh, that, uh, but in South Texas, I think the issues are several. One is, as I mentioned earlier, this increasing dissonance between what the National Democratic Party is saying and doing and the opinions and preferences of voters down in the valley. 
uh, you know, as Henry Cuellar has been, I think, a pretty good uh, person to pointing out the, that uh, dissonance. So on issues such as oil and natural gas and fracking down in the valley, as well as in much of Texas, uh, you have Latino workers who either directly or indirectly depend heavily on uh, oil and natural fossil fuel in industry. And so a move away from that towards renewables is going to have a negative short-term impact on their uh, economic livelihood, if not a negative long-term impact. Uh, also, you know, the immigration issue is a touchy one in that Republicans get in trouble when they promote rhetoric or policies that are seen by Latinos as racist or anti-immigrant. But Democrats also get in trouble when they promote policies that are seen as leading to uh, chaos down in the border region as well as throughout the state. And so some of, and so I think you know one of the mistakes that national Democrats often make is that by having a very uh, progressive position on immigration, that that's going to increase or boost their support among Latinos nationwide. And what we see in Texas is, for instance, in a poll that we did at the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation, a majority of Texas Latinos support Governor Abbott's border policies, with the exception of building a wall where support's pretty much divided. But uh, there's overwhelming support in the Anglo community for the governor's border policies. But even in the Latino community, his supports, uh, there's more support than there is uh, opposition, which means when national Democrats come in with policies that are seen as creating chaos or at least leading to an increase in undocumented migration, that doesn't necessarily always ring positive with uh, Latino voters in the state, particularly those in South Texas. Yeah, Professor, fascinating having you. Uh, I want to I want to uh, uh, ask if you will indulge us in the future, and uh, because there's going to be a lot of activity between now and November, if we can invite you back and 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 have the university share a little bit of your time with us. Uh, you're, you're a tremendous wealth of knowledge. You're an, a, not only an asset to the university, but also to Houston in helping us uh, as lay people understand, uh, you know, that's why we are refer to you as a political scientist, because at the end of the day, it still is a science, how human beings react uh, to rhetoric and how they vote uh, is is still fascinating to me. And uh, so we, we, we want to thank you and we want to invite you back. It'll be my pleasure. We have, here in Harris County, we're going to have a really interesting county judge race between yes, we Alexandra Delmoral-Miller and Lena Hidalgo. So I think I think that's yeah. a race that's going to get quite a bit of not only statewide, but also national attention with national. the reality being that tech, you know, Harris County is the third most populous county in the country. And we have more people in Harris County than 26 U.S. states. So it's a pretty important position. And you're going to have uh, two Hispanic women battling to be uh, the leader of the county for the next four years. Awesome. Thank you, Professor. Professor, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And as the professor said, sometimes the rhetoric of the National Democratic Party creates a disconnect among Latinos. And, you know, um, we have a wonderful guest coming up who's a dear friend of mine, uh, Ambassador Chase Untermeyer. And his resume and his bio is way too long to read it. <laughs> Other than let's just say he spent a little time in the Texas legislature. Uh, he has spent a little time with the Department of Defense guiding the Navy. Uh, he has spent time uh, in the White House. Uh, he has spent time in... In, uh, in the Middle East, uh, 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 representing the United States and the and and the, and and the president uh, in Qatar, and so uh, 
Ambassador, if I'm missing something, jump in and, and, and share with us. He's also an, also an author. Uh, he was a dear friend of the Bushes. But more importantly, he's been my friend for many, many, many years uh, here in Houston. And uh, I consider uh, Ambassador uh, Unter Chase Untermeyer to be one of the brightest individuals that I can talk to. Every time I talk to him, I glean all kinds of information. I attended a presentation he made one time at the Amogee Bank building in the Galleria, and it was sort of a thumbnail sketch of the history of the Middle East. It was fascinating. His depth of knowledge of issues that he delves into is fascinating. So if you ever want to learn something, uh, talk to Ambassador Chase Untermeyer. And I invited him on the program because I had a casual conversation with him one day because we try a lot of ethnic foods around Houston. And, and on a phone call, I said, you know, Ambassador, what is critical race theory? Because everybody's talking about it. And Ambassador said, I really don't know. And so welcome. Uh, delighted to have you with us. Well, thank you, Orlando and Andrea. Uh, great pleasure to be here, especially to follow after a distinguished academic like Dr. Mark Jones. Yeah. And, and so let's talk a little bit about uh, what I wanted to discuss. So there's so many things we can talk about, but, you know, critical race theory. Um, what is it? And I know I asked you that, and, and, and you, like me, you know, I'm not really sure what it is. So let's have a discussion because both sides of the aisle, the political aisle, are using this. But I don't know that the average person understands what it is. And I will repeat for the benefit of uh, people watching us that I don't know either. Uh, I've read a lot of uh, controversy about what is uh, called critical race theory, but I've never seen a common definition. And that uh, is exactly the problem of our age in that we as a people and as political people get very heated, uh, very uh, concerned about things that uh, have no central definition. That does not prevent people from having passionate opinions on what they think it means. And this is why our current politics uh, are, is so stoked up with not just this issue, but many others we could mention. Uh, for example, defund the police became yeah. a slogan uh, a couple of years ago. And lots of people got very angry on both sides of that issue. And there is no common definition of what that means. Uh, it's gone everywhere from attempts in uh, Minneapolis, literally to defund and, and disestablish police departments to people who say, well, it just means uh, having police departments clean up their acts and uh, do things a little bit differently. Uh, but yeah, to say again, that did not prevent people from getting uh, uh, quite angry on that subject. Yeah, and people do get angry. I mean, it's like BLM, you know, Black Lives Matter. I mean, who can argue with that, that Black Lives Matter? Does anyone argue black lives don't matter? I mean, you know, all human life matters, <laughs> but people get wrapped around the axle about that. You know, if, if I might give uh, advice to our friends on the left uh, who pride themselves on being creative people, uh, that it's very dangerous for them when they create uh, subjects like critical race theory or defund the police uh, that are undefined because you know, in effect, they're handling, handing very uh, uh, powerful weapons to conservatives uh, to make uh, uh, an argument uh, as to what they think it means. And uh, this has uh, hurt uh, the people on the left. Uh, not, I'm not uh, crying about that, but uh, this is uh, almost a self-inflicted wound uh, by them. 
Well, and, and the same thing with changing our sort of uh, how they refer to uh, to people like me. Now we're Latinx. <laughs> you know, it's a all, new, new, all, ter all new the, terms that I don't understand. All, all the polls are like yeah. Hispanics. They're like Latinx. What the mm -hmm. heck is that? Why they want to invent so many things? Uh, I, I don't understand. You guys been in politics for many, many years. Mm -hmm. You guys are... Um, like the old-fashioned way, like a conservative way. I'm glad you said old-fashioned and not just old. <laughs> no, 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 old-fashioned way, which is a, a very conservative. Um, I don't understand none of this uh, terminology. I'm coming from Colombia, South America. I came here in 1997. Um, I've been, um, you know, I, I was doing news for 15 years, and I never saw this happening. Like uh, every day, we need to learn a new term, we need to learn how to treat people, uh, um, and everybody seems like we need to treat everybody different and special. I don't understand this. If I might add on to that, uh, to say that uh, people on the right also have been using words and phrases that I don't think they fully understand. Uh, it's very, very common today for Republicans to attack Democrats for being socialists or even Marxists, and uh, I, I don't believe they uh, At the same time, sending their children to public schools. <laughs> yes, well, uh, I was speaking to a group of uh, teachers in a teacher training institute in Lubbock last week, and which uh, one of them said, well, a lot of our students come to us and their parents listen to Fox News and they hear Republicans call Democrats socialists. Are, are Democrats really socialists? And I said, well, this would be a very good classroom project to have your students go get the books or the uh, internet, whatever source they want to actually find out what socialism is. And even Bernie Sanders, who calls himself a democratic socialist, is not a classic socialist in the sense of state ownership of the means of production. That's what socialism is. Uh, and the, the uh, British government after World War II, the Labor Party, after ousting Winston Churchill, proceeded to implement socialism, such as uh, nationalizing the steel industry, the rail industry, the coal industry. And even Bernie Sanders, with all of his wackiness, is not proposing the nationalization of any industry in the United States. I think they like the word social within socialism, which suggests uh, being concerned about people and their problems and trying to help them. And that's a reason why many young people have glommed onto this word socialism, thinking that it must be a good thing because it's concerned with helping people. But that's not what socialism is. And Marxism is nothing more than an earlier version of, of uh, socialist thought, which uh, imagines the, the state ownership of uh, the means of production and everybody sharing accordingly. And uh, then there was Marxist-Leninism, which uh, added the power of the state, in particular the terror power of the state, to force people to be socialist and to share whatever they had, limited things they had. So that's, that's what actual socialism and, and Marxist socialism is. But it's not what America is about. You know, Ambassador, uh, having come from a country that dabbled in all of the above, um, you know, we, I think we tend to be a little more sensitive uh, to those issues. And I can, 
um, I could look at three industries in the United States that have been uh, there, there's no question that capitalistic ingenuity and investment and research and development uh, actually improve things in the global economy and contribute vastly to humanity and society. But I've noticed when the government gets involved, it sort of tends to ruin it, so to speak. And I'll, I'll, I'll refer to three industries that I'm concerned about in America. Public education in many areas, particularly in urban areas, has become, in my opinion, a, a a disaster. It needs a lot of attention. It's it's unfair to the taxpayers. It's unfair, unfair to the parents. Unfair to the children. And unfair to the future of the of the, for example, the state of Texas. Because anyone that reads about the Houston Independent School District knows it's an unmitigated disaster. Number two is the medical industry. Uh, you know, when I emigrated to this country in the '60s, I was a severe asthmatic, and I remember my parents calling the doctor. He used to show up with a little black bag. Uh, and, you know, give me medications and inhalers, and if I needed to, uh, would meet us at the hospital. It, 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 it was better. Uh, you, you, you didn't have to sell your home and your assets and liquidate everything you own to pay for medical costs. And, and, then, and, and then finally, the energy industry. While the, while the energy industry is not owned by the state, of course, other than the strategic petroleum reserves that we have, uh, uh, they do things from policy perspective that do affect the industry. For example, the cancellation of pipelines, uh, making it difficult. Uh, there's a whole woke society, speaking of new terms, woke society <laughs> among lending institutions globally that are refusing to lend to oil exploration, making it more difficult because they think that they can drive the agenda to go to uh, alternative forms of, of energy. So. It, the energy, medicine, education, the more the government gets entrenched in it, the poorer the product, in my opinion. And that, that's, while it's not socialism, it seems to be tending that way. Well, an old-fashioned word is statism. That is, the state, the national government in this case, intervenes in the market uh, or in uh, healthcare is an excellent example, uh, energy is another that you mentioned. Uh, now, public education is a state enterprise. Uh, that is, uh, it is uh, in the United States, the responsibility of the individual states and the individual states create independent school districts that are subunits of the state government. And that uh, is, has always been intended to be a government entity. And while we're on that subject, a lot of parents have been mobilized by what they think is critical race theory or other issues that have uh, been publicized on the national level. And they have come into school board meetings to protest the curriculum. And many commentators, mostly on the left, have looked upon this with uh, despair and concern. Uh, and if people have been impolite and abusive and threatening, well, that's just a matter of their manners and tactics, uh, not so smart, incidentally, when confronting any elected body. But the fact is that we have independent school districts that are elected with boards of education that are elected by the citizens. And that's a good thing, in my view. That's exactly what should happen. Now, I uh, am encouraged that we're getting more and more people, and I believe a good chunk of them are Latinos, who are running for school boards because they recognize that that is the power that they as parents can truly have. And if they aren't candidates, then just being active citizens, going to school board meetings, 
uh, seeing what goes on is a very healthy development. Did, didn't, didn't Plato realize how important it was for the education of the guardians in Plato's Republic? Uh, yes, I think he was involved with the school board up in North Texas, but <laughs> I, I can't say that for sure. Ambassador, um, uh, I just want to ask uh, both of you um, uh, something talking about socialism. Um, I'm from Colombia, and, and you've been uh, outside the United States representing the country uh, as an ambassador. Uh, we're having, uh, in my country, in Colombia, elections this coming Sunday, and it's uh, two people that one is from the left, and everybody is afraid that uh, if he wins, we're going to become like Venezuela. The other one, it's somebody that he doesn't have a political career. It's somebody that it, it, it represents the middle. It's not from the left. It's not from the right. It's from the middle. But at the end of the day, what he represents is the people's, that, the change that they want to have in Colombia. They're tired of, of, of the same thing, and they want a change. And that's why people like uh, Gustavo Petro, which is from the left, um, you know, came like twice to try to be a president. Thank God he, he, he failed on that. And now is Rodolfo Hernandez, which is another candidate that he doesn't represent any, any party. He is just in the middle, and he is very independent. So you being outside of the United States representing United States as an ambassador, what do you think about these, uh, this situation that we're living in Latin America that is, it, it seems like they're not learning from Venezuela, they're not learning from Cuba, and they still— one and Nicaragua, and they still want to vote for these kind of people? Well, first of all, we celebrate the fact that uh, throughout Latin America today, as opposed to a generation ago, that people actually do have the right to vote, uh, that there are fewer dictatorships. There still are several, uh, far too many, in the countries you mentioned, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, Cuba, of course. but. Uh, what uh, we saw many years ago were military dictatorships that did not allow people to uh, be engaged in politics. Uh, happily, we've moved past that point. But we've also moved well past it to the point that we are seeing leftists elected throughout Latin America. They may or may not be as far left as in Venezuela or Nicaragua, but uh, the number of countries is growing. We've seen people like that elected in Bolivia and Ecuador and in Chile. Argentina always seems to have a romance with the left, and they have uh, reinforced that in recent years. We'll see what happens in Brazil later this year. Uh, so that, that's the general picture. Uh, Colombia is the shining star of democracy in South America uh, because not just that they have free elections that mean something, but it also has come after a decades-long struggle against uh, violent extremists who want to uh, d uh, deny people that freedom and to do in Colombia what happened next door. So yeah. uh, one day we can hope that Venezuela will once again be a democracy. They, they just made the mistake of voting themselves a dictator. Yeah. Same thing for my uh, compatriots down on the island. Uh, I'd be remiss, Ambassador, if I didn't uh, touch one point that uh, I find fascinating. The Middle East seems quiet. Uh, I know there are sometimes there's a few conflicts between Lebanon and Israel and, you know, Israel with the Iranians and, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, <clears throat> intra-neighborhood squabbles. 
is the Middle East quieter because our focus now has uh, been on the Russian situation, uh, or has it in fact uh, been the beneficiary of uh, strong diplomatic uh, conversations which have settled things down? Well, first of all, we have to remember the Middle East covers a, a large number of regions. Right. And it's, it's often referred to as one, but uh, the definition of Middle East can extend as far west as Morocco on the northwest shoulder of Africa, all the way to uh, Persian Gulf or uh, Iran, even Pakistan was often thrown into the mix and it's not really part of the Middle East. But uh, uh, fortunately, the amount of active fighting that's going on in the Middle East is pretty well confined. Uh, that doesn't mean it's a healthy development because what's been happening in Yemen and Syria and to uh, a lesser extent in the West Bank of, uh, of, uh, of Israel uh, is, uh, is still uh, troublesome. It's just not a broad scale conflict as we've seen in the past. Uh, there was a positive development in the past year or two in which various uh, Arab nations uh, signed an agreement called the Abraham Accords, which uh, made relations with Israel overt uh, I make that point because I believe all of those countries, uh, primarily United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, uh, uh, were having uh, uh, subtle or quiet contacts with Israel in other places like the United Nations. But uh, it's a positive development. Uh, the fact is that none of the countries who signed that accord on the Arab side had ever fought a war with Israel. Uh, that's why the real historic steps forward were those peace treaties between Israel and Egypt and Jordan, which were enemies of Israel in several conflicts. Uh, so uh, while the Abraham Accords may not be quite as historic as those treaties, it's still a very positive development. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Jimmy Carter, but certainly one of the, the Camp David uh, Accords and, and the leadership role I think that Egypt took uh, uh, sort of was was a good tone that was set for the region. Um, Ambassador, uh, can't thank you enough for dedicating some time. I know you're probably busy writing another book or, you know, uh, uh, you know, addressing uh, global issues that might be uh, posited in, in, at your doorstep, but uh, you're very generous with your time. And uh, again, like I told Professor Mark Jones, uh, we'd like to have you back from time to time to talk about uh, the, the critical issues uh, facing, facing our, not only our country, but uh, because of your international experience you know, throughout the world. So thank you so much, and we look forward to having you again. Well, I, I will accept in advance and will say that, uh, yes, I've had quite an education thanks to the taxpayers of the United States. And as a result, I feel like I owe them uh, whatever education they allowed me to get. <laughs> you know, and as an old airman that served in the United States, United States Air Force, I always tell people that I still believe that we shouldn't let the Navy fly aircraft. <laughs> ah, all right. Well, <laughs> that will be the subject of a real debate. <laughs> Look forward to it. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So, you know, we're lucky that we live in Houston. Yes. I think we had two of the most capable and intelligent human beings that I know here in Houston to, to share with us uh, their knowledge that they've gathered over the years. Um, you know, Rice University and, per, and Professor Jones are amazing, and then, of course, the ambassadors. So 
Thank you for your production. You're the one in charge of, uh, <laughs> of producing this show. Andrea has stepped up to be our producer, so you uh, every week get to get to see the fruits of her labor. But uh, she's uh, really come along. Um, and again, and we're so excited about Maida Flores. I mean, we're we just, so happy about Maida. I feel like jumping on a flight and going oh down. Oh my to, God, for real! For we need to have her in the show. Uh, I didn't want to bother right, her. Right, right. Yeah, because next I week, know. Maybe. Yeah, but next week maybe we can have her on the show. It's this is a, a very exciting moment, and especially because she is part of TLC and for uh, one of the first um, Latino leadership. Uh, classes and she's come back to teach some of our classes yeah. across the state of Texas. Uh, as uh, and Myra is not the only uh, uh, positive outcome of our efforts across the state of Texas. I mean, we can go to uh, uh, Midland, Texas, where we had Dan Corrales. Uh, we can go to yeah. Kerrville, Texas, uh, where we had a young uh, Hispanic, an uh, 18-year-old, got elected. Uh, we have our own um, Joel Castro. Uh, we have our former executive director, Michelle Gamboa, just won mm -hmm. the city council oh, yeah, race in true. Longview. Oh, my God. And so, you know, it, it, and, and about, uh, Professor Jones referred to this. Um, you know, we're building the farm team in Texas, and I love that word because, you know, I grew up on baseball, mm -hmm. uh, and baseball teams always have farm teams. Uh, these are the young talent that they're trying to develop that sometimes get called up to the majors. And uh, so you're seeing our farm team starting to come up to the majors. Uh, you know, uh, Maida was on the farm team for a couple of years, and here she is. She's in the big leagues now. She's going to the United States Congress, and I'm sure her parents are very proud. And I'm proud of uh, Republicans for stepping up and helping an immigrant uh, who's a conservative yes. get elected as the first conservative Republican immigrant from the state of Texas to the United States Congress. Let me repeat that. That only happens in America. Yep. Because try to go to Colombia, Cuba, or Mexico Forget and it. run for their Congress. Forget Ain't going to happen. Forget it. But talking about Colombia, I want to uh, put the graphic, uh, if Mark, our producer, can put the graphic uh, para los colombianos que viven acá en Houston y que quieren votar para elegir el nuevo presidente de Colombia, que es las elecciones eh, oficiales son el domingo 19 de junio, el Día del Padre, el domingo 19 de junio. Sin embargo, acá en Houston tenemos votación anticipada y ahí está en pantalla toda la información. Es para la segunda vuelta de las votaciones presidenciales. Eso empezó el lunes 13 y va hasta el domingo 19 de junio a partir de las 8 de la mañana hasta las 4 de la tarde y es en el Metropolitan Multiservice Center que está ubicado en el 1475 de la West Gray. Ahí también hemos votado votado nosotros por las elecciones acá locales, así que es una, un área, un, una ubicación muy central para que todos los colombianos no es en el consulado de Colombia, porque me pasó en la primera vuelta que fui y voté en, a votar al consulado de Colombia no es, es en el multiservice de West Gray, así que atención colombianos, muy importante eh, tengan en cuenta que queremos elegir el presidente con, eh, que nos va a llevar a un mejor futuro que no nos va a llevar al socialismo Vean a su eh, vecino en Venezuela, ellos quisieron elegir por un cambio y lo que eligieron fue cambiar de país porque les tocó cambiar de país. Y no queremos que eso nos ocurra en Colombia. Tú tienes la experiencia en Cuba y por favor, así que eh, 
Yo voy a no, decir, pero te voy a decir yo que... voy a decir a voz alta, mi, mi candidato va a ser Rodolfo Hernández, o es Rodolfo Hernández, voy a votar mañana por él, eh, aprovechando que tenemos las votaciones anticipadas, así que colombianos, por favor, voten, aunque estemos fuera del país, nuestro país nos importa, y además, todo lo que ocurra en Latinoamérica también tiene implicaciones en los Estados Unidos, y vivimos acá, así que muy importante salir a votar, y vayan a votar, no voten en blanco, vayan a votar, en contra del socialismo. Y, y, y te voy a comentar que los que se benefician de, de lo que está sucediendo en Cuba, en Venezuela, en Colombia, en Ecuador, en otros países, Bolivia y Nicaragua, son los Estados Unidos, porque aquí lo, los, los cubanos, venezolanos, colombianos, nicaragüenses que han venido, han sido fantásticos, han contribuido a este país y es, es increíble. Así que sigan ustedes allá con, con lo que quieren hacer, pero... Yo prefiero que todo el mundo, eh, particularmente Latinoamérica, viva en una democracia donde ellos pueden ex, eh, votar, seleccionar a sus candidatos y vivir en libertad. Si quieren a criticar el gobierno cubano, que lo hagan. Yeah. Yeah, es, es la belleza de este país. Aquí yo puedo salir mañana y criticar al presidente y no me van a arrestar. Correcto, correcto. Okay. Así bueno, que felicidades a los colombianos, cuidado. salgan a votar. Entonces nos vemos la semana que viene. Thank you, Mark, for uh, indulging us today. Bye-bye. Nos vemos el próximo miércoles.